Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. This week, pummeled by Russia, Ukraine still holds out, but for how long? I even don't know what the day of today is. I only know that it is a seven day of war. If they enter Kiev, if they reach the center, Ukraine will not exist as a country anymore. We'll ask a former British commander in Iraq and Afghanistan if Russia's invasion has gone wrong, and if so, why? Are Russia's soldiers poorly equipped? Do they use old maps still? Did they think there was this barracks? No. And we examine President Putin's nuclear option. Russia has just under 2,000 of these battlefield nuclear weapons. Any modern tactical nuclear weapon is still going to be much more destructive than the bombs used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. When Russia launched its all-out invasion of Ukraine a week ago, the Western consensus seemed to be that the main fighting would by now most likely be over. We were wrong. After seven days, Russian forces have claimed control of just one of Ukraine's cities. We see the Russian armed forces moving very slowly on its objectives. It is behind schedule considerably. The tactics weren't correct. They were rather confident they would take many of these cities in a few hours. And when any army on the move takes longer to do things, your logistical supply chain is stretched. But the Defence Secretary's assessment came with a warning that Russia's operation would become more brutal. With ground forces moving slower than expected, there seems to have been a tactical shift of focus toward bombardment of Ukrainian cities from the ground and the air. The United Nations says at least 136 civilians have been killed, but that the true figure is likely to be much higher. Millions live in fear of their lives from missiles and shells. I couldn't even see it first. It was all up in smoke. Dust, smoke, it was nuts. We ran around here as it was, on top of broken glass. We didn't care. I'm on the subway now and it's terrible. How many kids are there? I hope all this violence and cruelness and soon. Ukraine's armed forces remain outgunned but are fighting back hard, as are some of Ukraine's citizens. Just one example from the city of Militopol, where a crowd of protesters appeared to try to block a Russian military convoy. So has Russia's invasion gone wrong? And how long can Ukraine hold out? Well, to answer those questions, we first need to know what the state of play is right now. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is here. And Michael, can you give us the strategic overview as of Thursday morning? Yes. Overnight, we confirmed that Kherson in the south has fallen to Russian forces. That doesn't mean to say they stopped fighting there, but they more or less control the city. And that's an important city that gives them access to the crossing the Dnipro. So it means that they can get their forces on the other side of the Dnipro and move up the Dnipro Valley, which they will do at some point in the future. And it's a, it's an important city in relation, there are th- in relation to the fact that there are three cities in the south, Mariupol, where they're still fighting. I don't know how, but they are. 
Kherson and uh, Odessa in the West, which hasn't yet been taken. But those three cities uh, make up the ribbon of cities in the West. Then up in the Northwest, the second city of, of Ukraine is Kharkiv, still fighting at Kharkiv and, and it's being bombarded. So what we see at Kharkiv is the way the Russians do these things, which is to stand outside the city, bombard it until they think that they can walk in more or less easily. And what happens at Kharkiv is in theory, in theory, what may happen to Kiev in due course, maybe in a, a week's time. Mm. And Michael, I said Ukraine's forces remain outgunned. Both sides have taken losses. Can you get any sense of how much of each side's capability has been removed from the battlefield? We can. There are a number of, of civilian organisations who are very good because there's so much information around and they, they uh, track everything that they can literally document in photographs and for other, other uh, ways. Now, these figures, therefore, will be too low, but they offer an idea. So as of midnight last night, the, it looked as if the Russians have lost about 515 pieces of equipment. The Ukrainians have lost about 163 pieces of equipment. And, that, and the, the figures I've been looking at are for main battle tanks, armoured fighting vehicles, infantry fighting vehicles, and armoured personnel carriers. And if you look at all of those things, what's most interesting about those figures for those major battlefield systems is that the, those that have been abandoned and captured are a very high proportion. It looks as if the Russians have abandoned, have abandoned or had captured about 68% of all the equipment they've lost in those categories. You would expect that when a force is retreating. They have to abandon vehicles when they give ground. But you wouldn't expect the attacking force to have so many vehicles abandoned and captured when they're going forward. So it indicates that they're really not doing very well, although, of course, they're outgunning the Ukrainians in almost every sphere. Uh, also with us this week is retired Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell, whose career includes commanding air support operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Sean, with the picture Mike just set out, can we say Russia's invasion has gone wrong or is it simply we in the West overestimated their capability? Yeah, I think part of this is um, looking back at what Putin's plan was. And I think none of us can get inside his head, but it looks likely based on the Crimea experience that he was expecting to roll in, keep the West at bay, and within a matter of hours or days, declare victory. Of course, as we know now, that's very much not the case. The Ukrainian Defence Forces, both the military and civilian, are protecting their homeland and have done an outstanding job. But also, Russia is largely a conscript army, and we're seeing the impact of that. And also, there is a lot of discussion about the very poor equipment the Russians have. And I, there was a lovely quote that was given to me the other day that said, Russia has a large and modern army, but the large army is not modern, and the modern army is not large. And mm. I think we're seeing some of the impact on that in the way this is playing out. And what do you think Russia's military strategy is going forward? Is it to lay siege to the cities? Well, again, it's interesting to look at history again, and this is where Michael have a view, but experience in Chechnya, Russians didn't really care about levelling Grozny at all. Um, so I don't think they see, they worry too much about civilian casualties. The real question is what the centre of gravity is. What is it that Russia actually wants out of this? Because I, it's very unlikely that they just want to level all the cities. They, they would want to... Uh, take over the country. So the political priority has to be Kiev. It has to be the, the, the government buildings. And, um, and I think that's where we'll see the centre of focus. The challenge is, of course, that, that the people there, both the military and the civilians, are very well motivated and they are dragging the Russian troops into urban warfare. 
which when you've got conscripts who are not necessarily the world best motivated, being dragged into street fighting, hand-to-hand fighting, the sense of fear, the sense of jeopardy, there's very little training that can prepare you for that. And that could end up being a very long, drawn-out battle. And Michael Clark, once a city is under siege, as appears to be the case for Mariupol in the southwest, what cards does Ukraine have left to play? Essentially, it's playing for time. It's playing for world opinion because it is possible, and although this is very, it's very harsh to say this, but it's true, it is possible you can lose terribly on the battlefield, but you win politically. Maybe the best they might hope for is some intervention by China to restrain Putin and halt before Ukraine is completely um, taken over, before Ukraine disappears as a, as a state. That's probably the best they can play for, and that's pretty grim at the mm. moment, but that's where they are. Well, we'll talk more shortly about the options for both sides and the British source for a lot of the detail we are discussing right now. Defence intelligence has always played a valuable part of the UK intelligence apparatus and certainly needs to be seen as one of the major centres of expertise. And it serves a really important role as the all-source intelligence fusion centre, effectively, of the analysis of intelligence. Before all that, though, one military option that Vladimir Putin has is the nuclear option. He chose to remind the world by ordering his strategic nuclear forces onto special alert. The UK and its allies call it a distraction from his difficulties in the conventional military campaign. NATO's nuclear posture is not changing in response. But it's also reminded us Russia has another unusual nuclear arsenal – tactical nuclear weapons that could be used on the battlefield. Might it deploy those? And how devastating would that be? Marion Messmer is the co-director of the British American Security Information Council, BASIC. She told me more about Russia's tactical arsenal. Russia has just under 2,000 of these um, battlefield nuclear weapons. Um, What I would also say is that um, while we have good estimates, uh, they are just estimates, Battlefield nuclear weapons are different from the strategic nuclear weapons that you mentioned in the introduction insofar as that they are shorter in range and they are lower in yield. Um, So that means an explosion of one of them is not as intense or destructive as an explosion of a strategic nuclear weapon. However, we should keep in mind that um, any modern tactical nuclear weapon is still going to be much more destructive than the bombs used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So um, if the listeners have any images in mind of what these cities looked like after nuclear weapons exploded there, it still gives you a really good idea of actually how devastating these tactical nuclear weapons are. And in the simplest terms, how do they work? In the Russian case, they can be delivered via a range of different delivery vehicles. So Russia has um, has different bombers and fighters that could deliver them. They have different missile launchers that could be used in a land war. Um, and they have submarines and, uh, and ships that could deliver them. Um, and they also use some of them in their missile defenses. One thing that is difficult is that all of these delivery vehicles uh, tend to be dual use. That means they could be used to shoot conventional weapons or nuclear weapons. So one of the tricky things about dual use equipment is that you always have to make a really potentially dangerous and risky calculus about whether your adversary is going to be using a conventional or a nuclear weapon. Mm. And how accurate are they? How much damage can they do? And how wide an area can they actually target? 
in terms of damage, they they would do an inordinate amount of damage. Um, I mean, it would it would outstrip that of most conventional missiles. Um, what's also particularly dangerous is that the radiation uh, sticks around for quite a while after they exploded. They can completely devastate an, an entire strip of land, an entire city for many more weeks and months to come. They can be quite precise. Russia modernized the majority of its nuclear arsenal, which means that a lot of them would be precision guided, uh, very likely. And how wide an area can they affect? The radius of a blast is probably enough to eradicate most modern cities, or at least uh, eradicate a, a, a decent chunk of a modern city. And at the same time, Russia has enough of them that if they were to be used, um, it could do a huge amount of damage. And have they ever been used in a conflict before by Russia or anyone else? No, the only time that nuclear weapons have been used was uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, and, um, and I think what's really important here as well is that there is a huge taboo around using nuclear weapons. So while it's really difficult to say for sure, you know, whether we, we can expect to see them used in Ukraine or a similar situation, I would say that the likelihood of use is inc incredibly low because uh, if Russia were to use them, that would be a huge escalation and, um, and Russia would expect to then be hit back by nuclear weapons. And that's a situation in which no one wins. It is obviously risky, but I think at this point, the, any of the nuclear posturing is just that. It's an attempt to, to deter um, or to, uh, to show resolve. Ukraine has accused Russia, of course, of already using a non-nuclear but devastating device, a so-called vacuum bomb or thermobaric weapon. What is that? So this is something that essentially uses a lot of, a lot of heat and a lot of pressure to shoot fuel uh, like a sort of shockwave. And what is, uh, what is different about these kind of weapons as opposed to um, other types of missiles is that they, um, the, the sort of fire blast that they shoot um, doesn't necessarily destroy walls, but it gets into the, the crevices of buildings. So what makes it particularly inhumane to use it in a situation such as the one in Ukraine is that anyone who might have been hiding in a building that was targeted with such a blast would have probably died because they would have been burned by that blast. So, um, so this is why that has caused a lot of outrage. Marion Mesmer from the British American Security Information Council. Uh, Sean Bell, Marion Mesmer believes if Russia were to use a tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine, there would be a strategic nuclear response from the West. Do you think that is how Russia and indeed the UK see it? Very difficult to tell, isn't it? But I think one of Putin's uh, strategic challenges is to avoid NATO getting involved um, because he will know that um, that would be at best a difficult battle and at worst a very humiliating. Um, he's using nuclear weapons as a deterrent, which is ultimately what their, their, their use is about, and threatening the West because knowing the full well that the West would not have the appetite to get involved. So it's difficult to get into the conjecture of actually using them. Um, I think there's a couple of re other reasons why I think he probably wouldn't use them. Um, the, he already has a load of weapons, as you've just heard, that can deliver very uh, dramatic effect on the ground. So why would you lay waste to a whole city when he, that's not exactly winning the, the minds of the people, because ultimately he'll have a view about um, what happens at the end game here, and he doesn't want to take over the infrastructure. I think it's, it's very interesting that the West's focus over the last few years has been, you don't want to knock out infrastructure. Infrastructure is useful 
um, because people have to go back to work, you have to you know, have comms back up, you want to mm -hmm. take out people. And, and it's really interesting watching this reversion to almost a stone age method of just blasting big holes in things. And I think ultimately the question that for me that this whole issue right, raises is do we think Putin will stop here? If the, he will learn from his um, adventure in Ukraine and where will he go next time? And if NATO or others, if he, if he takes on NATO or others, the bully will keep going until somebody calls him out. How long will the West allow him to hide behind this nuclear shield? And how long has the West got an appetite for watching what is essentially genocide happening uh, on the ground? And I think that's one that the uh, politicians and international leaders are going to be wrestling with. Michael Clark, can we briefly mention Ukraine's neighbour Belarus? Not only is this country being used for the Russian invasion, a constitutional referendum a few days ago renounced its non-nuclear status. Understandably, it's been somewhat lost in the coverage of the Ukraine war itself. But how significant is this new nuclear position of Belarus? <laughs> yes, <clears throat> only in Belarus could you mm. organise a constitutional referendum overnight and announce the results and change the constitution. I mean, that's, that's what they do in Belarus. What this is all about is opening up the borders of Belarus for Russian tactical nuclear weapons or maybe strategic nuclear weapons. So it's all part of Putin's attempt to frighten everybody by waving his nuclear weapons around. So renouncing the non-nuclear status of Belarus is a way for Lukashenko to show that he's Putin's friend and allow the Russians to put nuclear weapons on his territory to intimidate the West. One other point about this is that, as far as I'm concerned, Putin is finished. I mean, whether it will take a few years or whether it will happen quite quickly and suddenly, which might happen, um, as far as I'm concerned, this crisis kills off the Putin regime, however violent that end may turn out to be. When Putin goes, Lukashenko goes, because he will not be able to, re to put a cap on the revolution which is bubbling underneath Belarus all the time. Russia's slow progress on the ground has raised questions about morale among troops, but also what they have to work with. Just a couple of anecdotals here, but on Twitter, the geospatial intelligence firm Shadowbreak says it has evidence of regular Russian forces using old analogue radios, unencrypted so they can be monitored and jammed by locals. Also, we spoke a couple of days ago to a Ukrainian architect, Daria Sobolevska, who lives in Kyiv near an apartment block that was hit by Russian military. She raised the question about the fact that the block was on the site of a former military base. Ten years or so it was demolished, uh, the place was sold and there was a residential house built. So we kind of thought, uh, do they use old maps still? Did they think there was this barracks? No. But it could be because from from uh, some other, um, well, it's not official information, like my point of view, from other uh, things that they do, it looks like they are using some really old maps. Michael Clark, old maps, old radios. Is it really possible that what is supposed to be one of the world's most powerful militaries would be using those? Yes, it is possible because, remember, these troops and these units were on exercise. They were presumably told that they were on exercise. And, I mean, as Sean will know better than any of us here, um, when, when forces go on exercise, they go on a pretty easy uh, basis. They don't do all the things they're supposed to do. They don't check all the things they're supposed to check because the exercise isn't always, all, always very stretching. And lots of allowances are made for things that, well, they will be there when we need them. And there, there are a, is a growing category 
catalogue of, of issues which are, which are clearly affecting Russian forces because when they were massing around the border of Ukraine and in Belarus, they clearly thought they were on exercise. They were clearly neglectful. Lots of, of, um, uh, of systems have not been properly maintained. And the idea of turning up with their old maps and their old radios hmm. is entirely believable. If they'd known they were going to, to combat, they might have done something about it, but they didn't. Sean Bell, let's talk about air power here. An analysis by Justin Bronk at the defence think tank Rusi found most of the 300 Russian jets positioned near Ukraine stayed on the ground in the first four days. Any idea what's behind that? Well, again, unless you're inside Putin's head, it's difficult to know. Um, what I would say is that you don't fly jets for the sake of flying jets. You, you, you have a strategy, you have a plan, and you use your military resources to deal with that. I think it was pretty evident that Russia... Uh, dealt with the air threat on day one. They did a conventional sort of attack where they took out the uh, air defence radars, they uh, targeted military installations, in effect trying to create air dominance for themselves. If you only fly your aircraft just to fly them, then they become targets. And of course, that becomes very high publicity if you start shooting down modern uh, jets. So I think Mm. that would explain that. The other thing is that obviously close air support, in other words, using air power to support ground troops is a very effective way of creating military momentum. The trouble is, is that as soon as you go into urban fighting, it's very limited what air power can do in in the very close confines of a city. And mm. um, and that's where most of the fighting is happening. So, yes, it'll be available if and where it's required. But uh, it, I, it doesn't surprise me that the uh, Air Force at the moment is not the predominant weapon of choice. And Sean, calls for the West to impose a no-fly zone have grown and grown. The UK and NATO's steadfast position is basically, if it did, that would lead to World War III. Would it be a realistic option, though, for a non-NATO nation or grouping to try to impose a no-fly zone? I think the the concept of no-fly zone, it, it, for, for many people, they believe you click your fingers, impose no-fly zone, and nobody flies in it. In reality, anybody who tries to impose no-fly zone will have to... Uh, Russia will, will contest that. And it isn't just about uh, his jets flying in the airspace and having an aerial combat to see who wins. It's also about the air defence systems that predominantly will be based in Russia, the air defence radars, the surface-to-air missile systems... And the only way to create uh, a no-fly zone would be to target those. And to do that, you'd be delivering weapons into Russia. You would be mm. killing Russian servicemen. That is blatantly attack on Russia by the West. And anybody, the only people who are strong enough to be doing that is NATO. Any third party trying to do that would be destined to fail. So um, there's a grave risk of escalation. And besides, let's be clear... You've just asked me, air power is not being used very effectively at the moment. So what is to be gained by risking starting a conflict with Russia to try to make a no-fly zone when actually Russia has a lot of weapons available to it to do what it's currently doing, which is attritional warfare and urban warfare into Kiev? Michael Clark, Ukraine says it is now using armed drones received from Turkey. How much of a difference could that make, particularly if cities do end up being under siege? Yes, they're, they're talking about the uh, Bayraktar drones, the TB2, which were extraordinarily effective uh, in Azerbaijan when the Azerbaijanis used them against Russian tanks given to Armenia uh, a couple of years ago. And the point about the Bayraktar is not that it's a terribly sophisticated drone, but if you use enough of them, if you use them in a, in a, in a 
proper phalanx of drones, then they can be extremely effective. They each carry uh, four laser-guided bombs, and it's the bombs that are important here, not the drone in a sense, and they can be very effective. They, they have been used. They haven't seemed to have been used in, in such big numbers, which is interesting to me. It may be that the Russians are finding ways of jamming them, maybe. Mm. But they, the um, Ukrainians have produced this Punisher drone, as they call it. It's an electric drone. It's, it's much more crude. It's very stealthy because it's electric and it just t carries a single th uh, three kilogram bomb. And they look as if they've been using their drones, um, particularly this Punisher drone, uh, to attack this huge convoy that's heading slowly towards Kiev and, and has got itself stuck. It's basically tripped over its own feet. It's essentially, it's, it's an armoured division on the move and because of all sorts of, of inefficiencies, it's just got caught, it's got stuck. It's a massive, massive target. And mm. it's a wonder that it's not being attacked a bit more vigorously. I think it's because the Ukrainians are doing the best they can. But they, mm. they will rely more on what drones they have left as and when this battle goes into the, the cities. One unusual aspect to this conflict is that we've heard much more about the work of Defence Intelligence, a unit a bit like MI5 or 6, but it's part of the Ministry of Defence rather than a standalone organisation. While we've heard little of it before, we now get regular tweets sharing Defence Intelligence latest maps and brief assessments of the conflict. Its Thursday morning update said the main body of the large Russian column advancing on Kyiv remains over 30 kilometres from the centre of the city, having been delayed by staunch Ukrainian resistance, mechanical breakdown and congestion. Well, these sort of releases started in the weeks leading up to Russia's invasion. But why? Dr Dan Lomas from Brunel University researches the use of intelligence to support policy making. I think on, on one level, intelligence here is being used as information as part of uh, the wider information war and battle for public opinion. Certainly once um, Russia invaded Ukraine, there was a need to, to push information out there into the public sphere to explain what is happening on the ground. And what we're seeing really are defence intelligence summaries or sanitised defence intelligence summaries uh, releasing the situation on the ground and the movement of, of, of Russian troops. More, more generally, what we've seen before the conflict started was intelligence being released as an effort to counter Russian misinformation, particularly around the build-up of forces. And also, I think we've started to see the, the sharing of information to convince uh, wider publics of the, of the particular gravity of the situation. For example, during the war on terror, we were frequently publishing information or threat assessments on the situation posed by jihadist terror groups. And we've seen a return of the so-called nation state as a potential threat. And with this, we're, we're releasing information to perhaps tell individuals that Russia does pose a significant threat. In this particular instance, ahead of the invasion, were they essentially trying to disarm the pretext for a false flag operation? In essence, yeah, that's, that's part of the story, yes. Um, we've seen recently Russia engage in you know, info, info ops, disinformation, and this is an attempt by not just the UK government, but also other intelligence agencies to, to release as much information as possible to counter those narratives and openly question what the Russians are, are saying. There was also the line that the so-called pre-bottle strategy, the release of intelligence to... Uh, preempt Russian moves was an attempt to kind of deter um, a possible Russian attack. And I think that was certainly a naive, naive argument to take. The release of intelligence, however strong it is, could, could never deter an attack and only really hard military power 
could essentially do that. You mentioned uh, the use, the release of information during the war on terror, and it's not unprecedented for the UK to publicly use intelligence findings this way, perhaps most notably in the lead up to the Iraq war, but also over the use of chemical weapons in Syria. Does it feel, though, this time we're getting an awful lot more of it? Yeah, and I think you're right to point out that uh, the release of intelligence by government is certainly not a new thing. But yes, we are seeing a lot more intelligence being made public, not just not just UK, but also in the United States. We've seen the um, head of defence intelligence uh, report on the situation. And then we have seen every day, if you look at Ministry of Defence's social media, who you know, are doing some outstanding work on this. Um, they're, they're getting information out there as, as quickly as possible. We're more used to when governments do release intelligence summaries, it being something said by a minister and briefed to journalists. Are you surprised to see it being presented with a very public branding for defence intelligence, which many people in the UK might not have known existed until a few weeks ago? So, I mean, it is part of the, the UK's intelligence apparatus that's often overlooked. And, of course, Bond-like cliches uh, mean that we often focus on the UK's civilian intelligence agencies, particularly Secret Intelligence Service, GCHQ and, and, and Security Service. I think with this, you know, defence intelligence has always played a valuable part of the UK intelligence apparatus and certainly needs to be seen as one of the major centres of expertise, not just on defence intelligence, but also uh, regard with regards to scientific intelligence, technology and other, and other aspects. And it serves a really important role as the all-source intelligence fusion centre, effectively, of the analysis of intelligence. And it's good to see, really, that defence intelligence is taking more of a, a forward step um, as a result of the crisis in Ukraine. And it's also perhaps more ideally suited than um, other organisations we've, we've looked at to look at the particular situation on the ground and the movement of, of Russian forces. Mm. It is a potentially dangerous game, announcing assessments, isn't it? And we mentioned the Iraq war, the lead up to it in 2003. It can be wrong. That continues to dog the credibility of anything presented as intelligence, doesn't it? I think the, the real issue, again, it, it's, it's a gap between public perceptions of intelligence and the reality of intelligence that when we think about intelligence, we often think about all-seeing, all-knowing entities and, and, and the suggestion that um, when we talk about intelligence, we're talking about factual information. And often, as I'm sure your listeners are aware, we're dealing with patchy and sporadic information that is open to considerable interpretation. Defence intelligence, as with the other parts of the UK intelligence community, you know, cannot reveal the workings out. So what we're seeing here is the sanitised end product. And rightly, we need to protect techniques, tradecraft, sources, because it could potentially undermine our ability to, to gather intelligence from uh, these sources in, in, in future. Dr Dan Lomas from Brunel University. Well, let's get final thoughts now from our guest this week. Sean Bell, uh, based on the current position, how long do you think Ukraine's armed forces can keep fighting? Yeah, great question. Um, I'd, I'd start that by saying, I, I think, universally, admiration for President Zelensky and the Ukrainian military uh, and their civilians who are fighting with guts, determination and courage. Um, cities might fall, but the Ukrainian resistance will endure. Um, this is a brutal onslaught by Putin. And I think um, there's an interesting question that rises. What's the West's appetite to continue to watch from the sidelines? Ultimately, we're going to have to deal with this bully. You think the West may get involved more directly? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think there is an interesting philosophical question because if not now, when? 
his historical appetite for moving back to the great Russian Empire will eventually have to be addressed. Michael Clark, how do you think it will unfold over the next week? Yeah, well, since last week, the world has changed. Last Thursday, the world changed. And what we see this week in Kharkiv, this bombarding of the city, is what we are due to see for the rest of the this war in Ukraine. Remember, the Russians haven't done this. They haven't taken a city that doesn't want them there, where the population are prepared to fight and die. They haven't done it since the Battle of Berlin in 1945. Mm. And now we think about Kiev. You know, Kiev, Kiev was founded in the year 482. Kiev is more than 1,500 years old. And before we meet on this program next week, we are facing the prospect that the Russians are prepared to brutalize one of the jewels in the crown of their own Slavic civilization. It's completely surreal. Michael Clark, Air Vice Marshal Sean Bell, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. You can also keep up to date around the clock with bulletins every hour on BFBS radio and read the latest on our news website, forces.net. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 